Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building. you set yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march or demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never changed anything. All right, today's It's My House's title. We've been on reparations uh, for the majority of this week. So today we're going to cover it from this aspect, unified group reparations. Unified group reparations. Uh, the number, the last one number is 619-768-2945. 619-768-2945. Unified grouping in uh, group Reparations, which really the equivalent is really group economics. Group economics. All right. So we're going to give um, a couple of examples here on that. Uh, let's see where should we start off? 
Let's start off with this this clip right here. What up, peeps? It's the Catalyst. You read the title. But I want to start off with a parable before I get into what I'm going to say. So there is a younger brother and an older brother. And the younger brother is sitting in his bedroom in a chair. And he's he's got his legs stretched out. And he's got one ankle crossed over the other. And he's just sitting there chilling, watching TV. And his older brother comes into the room and looks at his younger brother and looks at the TV. And then glances back to his younger brother. And he says, man, you just look, you just look so relaxed. Like, why are you so relaxed? The younger brother looks away from the television towards his older brother. And he says, because I'm minding my business. And then he turns back around and continues watching TV. And I feel like that parable is applicable to everyone within the sound of my voice. And I want you to share that with other people, too. But this is what I want to say. You know, a lot of times when people see a bunch of Mexicans in a car, and you'll see like maybe five of them in one car, and they're, they're you know, just pulled up in the parking lot at work. And they all work at the same place. They all live at the same place. They all ride in the same one car, five of them. And you see them get out of that car, and everybody snickers and giggles and makes those jokes about, oh, look at all those Mexicans packed into that car, or other dumb shit people say. Not realizing this, right? Those five Mexicans, all five of them have a job. All five of them share one car. All five of them live together. They are exercising what personifies group economics. And what they're doing is all five of them are in that car and they all work. And once that car is paid off, they get a second car. And all five of them help pay off that second car. And after the second car is pay off, paid off, they go to the third, the fourth, and by the time you look up, all five of them have their own car. Nice cars, too. Because, once again, they practice group economics. They're not worried about what anybody else is doing. And, above all, they don't have so much pride that they aren't willing to share to get to where they don't have to share. Let me say that again. They don't have so much pride to the point where they aren't willing to share until they get to the point where they don't have to share. See, a lot of people start off greedy. A lot of people start off selfish. And a lot of people are struggling. Black people, white people, whatever you want to call them, are fucking struggling. You know what I don't see on a daily basis? I don't see a bunch of homeless Mexican people. I was at the gas station the other day. I saw these two homeless uh, white guys, and they had a dog. And I gave them a little bit of money. Sometimes I'll see a homeless homeless black guy. I'll give him some money. Now, I don't care what they do with that money. It's just the fact that I gave it to them, and they can make their own decision. You know, some people like to buy the food for them and give it to them so they won't buy alcohol or whatever. But I, I say, hey, man, shit, if, if I was homeless, I would need a fucking drink. 
I mean, so I don't really care what they did with the money. But I don't see a ton of homeless Mexican people. And even even in, you know, even if you go out to L.A. County in Los Angeles, where Mexicans make up about 47% of the population, um, you only, you know, there's, I, I think they only make up one-third, so 33% of the homeless population. So, I mean, those numbers back up what I'm saying. Pride is a is a killer. And sometimes people have too much pride not to ask because don't, don't get it twisted. A motherfucker will ask you for shit in a heartbeat. Anything somebody can get for free, they'll take it. But the, but the thing is, is that most people only ask for shit to live for the moment. They don't ask for things that will help them stack and save and build and eventually have a better future. No, they just want something for right now, you know. But let me get back to Mexicans. I I truly don't understand why you got black people and white people running around arguing, bickering, and fighting against each other. Then you got some black people and some white people talking about Mexicans are taking jobs and they need to be sent back to Mexico and we need to build a wall and all this other shit. When the truth of the matter is, is that Mexicans are minding their fucking business. And that's why you'll see that that Mexican guy who used to be one of the five people in the car, he'll pull up to work in his in his nice new used car with a spoiler on the back, no doubt, with rims, no doubt, with the beads hanging from the rearview mirror. And it's because at one point in time, he was where you are, but he's done passed you the fuck up. Facts. He used to be where you are. And I'm not saying that Mexicans are all super rich. And I'm not saying that that's their goal. But what I am saying is that when it comes to practicing group economics, Mexicans uh, could teach the majority of people in this in this country a thing or two. Because once again, they're not ashamed or afraid or too prideful to live in an apartment together, to cook for one another and share food, share bills, uh, share a car payment. They're not afraid to do those things because they don't give a fuck what you think. They're minding their business because they know eventually they're going to own a business. See, one thing that bothers me is when people say Mexicans are stealing jobs. Motherfucker, why don't you get out there and work on the horse farm? I used to work on a horse farm. I was a night watchman. And there were some Mexican gentlemen that worked on the horse farm as well. And they did some heavy fucking work, man. Like lifting bales of hay and shoveling horse shit and all that stuff. Uh, cutting grass. You, you name it. But see, one thing that I peeped out about them is, is that the whole time... From the outside looking in, it just looked like they were doing the shitty work. The work that nobody else wanted. But when you put yourself in somebody's shoes, then you realize what they were really doing. They were learning. They were gaining experience. So that one day they would be able to start a company and run that company and hire other Mexicans. And that's what they do. They work as landscapers. 
they'll cut your grass. And the whole time you're thinking that they're beneath you when really they're learning so that they can teach someone else group economics. Group economics isn't always about uh, buying a club or, you know, buying a bar or having enough money to throw in the strip club. That's not group economics. Group economics isn't, I start a record label, and then your little cousin raps, so I'm going to sign him. That's not fucking group economics, man. Wake up. Group economics is learning so that you'll be able to teach other people from the group the skill or the trade that you've learned, and you'll start businesses and so on and so forth. This is why Mexicans are better off than... The majority of black people and the majority of white people. This is why the majority of black people and the majority of white people who don't like Mexicans or who don't think Mexicans should be in this country don't like them. Because you see them succeeding without realizing that the reason that they're succeeding is because they went through some shit to get to where they are. This is why when you look in the mirror, if you're down and out, you should say Mexicans are better than me. That's what you should be saying. Point blank period. You might not like it. You might think I'm full of shit. But it's a fact. It's just straight up facts. They're minding their business. They're working. They're making something for themselves in a future. See, it's real easy for me to get out there and hustle. And have enough money for me to... Throw at the strip club, you know, buy a nice car, and do other foolish shit with it. But it's not really easy for me to grind and grind and grind at a job, learn that trade, and then since me and four other of my friends are both are, are all grinding at that same job, and then we put our money together and we start a company together, then we're all successful. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, you cannot like this. You can turn this shit off. But you cannot unhear what I've just said. Mind your own business. You know, they got something called Black Twitter. And it, it pisses me off that people, uh, that black people accept this name, Black Twitter. Because Black Twitter only, re only refers to the stupidest fucking shit on Twitter. Facts. Whenever somebody says something about black Twitter to me, I don't click that shit. As a matter of fact, I try not to follow people or have people on my timeline that are going to post dumb fucking stupid shit. I mean, you got tons of people running around on social media uh, just being stupid. People care about likes more than they care about learning. People care about likes more than they care about having a car, having a job. Having money in their pocket, being healthy. I mean, it, it's sick. It's truly sick. And then you got black people and white people who will actually team the fuck up. Like, like it, it's it's crazy. Like you got black people and white people who who don't like each other. Some black people and white people who don't like each other. But then they'll team up to talk about the Mexican who's at work. And, and it's just insane. 
Like, mind your own fucking business, man. If you think, if you honestly think Mexicans are stealing jobs from you, you're not working hard enough. Because by that same logic, anybody in America who has a job that you don't is stealing a job from you. Okay, I think that audio is complete. Today's podcast is titled, once again, Unified Group Reparations. 619-768-2945 is the live stream call-in number. Once again, Unified Group Reparations. We've been covering reparations in some form uh, practically all this week. I don't think we covered it Monday, but uh, yesterday, Tuesday today, and we'll probably cover tomorrow, uh, some aspect of reparations. So today's topic, group. Unified group reparations, uh, which translates into group economics. Now, in that last clip, he was talking about uh, what some Mexican Americans or Mexicans are doing as far as group economics uh, or unified group economics, because you have uh, you've had people that have started off taking the the jobs that many Americans don't want, the the shit jobs, the dirty jobs, and like cleaning toilets. Some people, hey, they clean toilets, and the next thing you know, they have a janitorial business. Some people don't like, uh, you know, cleaning up somebody's nasty house or whatever. Next thing you know, they have uh, a maid service. And they got, you know, incorporated. They got cars, uh, branded cars or trucks running around town. Um, And a lot of this is on the family business uh, side of things. So unified group reparations. And a lot of, if you don't know Mexican history, uh, many of the ancestors of your modern-day Mexican, um, or even Latin American, they were enslaved. Just like African Americans, many of them were enslaved. Uh, under all colors of the rainbow, you know, you have black Mexicans, all kind of colored Mexicans. But a lot of Mexicans, if you look up their family tree, they were enslaved just like African Americans. So, um, however, the big distinction is uh most of them have stayed on the entrepreneurial route now quite a few african americans after slavery was abolished in the united states became entrepreneurs uh but around what when fdr first got elected 1932 something like that um with these entitlement programs uh many people of all races got on um the till but too many of them stayed on it. So, um, but the group economics thing works. Now, the next thing I'm going to play, because I don't want to make it appear that we're beating up on African Americans, is I'm going to play a clip. You can look this up online. It's, it's matter of fact, yesterday we talked about reparations with plain sight. In other words, these are opportunities that you can take advantage of right now 
without waiting on the government. You're going to have to be proactive because if you wait on the government, you might not live long enough to get this. Okay. These are opportunities that are affordable that you can take advantage of right now on the individual basis or the individual household basis, you know, with you and your family, or you can get a small group of like-minded people together. You don't need a million people. You get a small group of like-minded people together and take advantage of these reparations within plain sight opportunities right now. Now, the operative term here is ghost towns. There are ghost towns all over the place in the United States. There are ghost towns in all 50 states in the United States. They've got the infrastructure already there. You can go rent. Now, you're going to have to put in some sweat now. But you can go into these places and buy what real estate that you can or land that you can in these areas and basically put your own flavor. Matter of fact, whatever your name is, Uville USA, Uverberg USA or whatever, and start your own town. Matter of fact, there are people who have been evicted. Matter of fact, let me give you a good idea, a visual. There's a film that I want you to watch today or this weekend titled 99 Homes. Go to um, YouTube or Amazon. You can rent it or buy it. I, I purchased it off of YouTube. And the film, 99 Films, is about the foreclosure bubble that happened, probably still is happening here in the United States, it takes place in Orlando, Florida, Metro Orlando, Florida. And in that film, you see a bunch of people who basically lost their home to foreclosure. They lost their house to foreclosure because there's a distinction between a home and a house. But anyway, so in one scene, there, you know, the family that uh, got evicted because they lost their home to foreclosure, they're living in this residential motel. And in this residential motel, there's a whole community of other people just like them. They lost their homes to the same guy due to foreclosure. That same community that's within that residential motel can go out and buy a ghost town and be and live debt free for generation from generation to generation to come. So the next thing I'm going to play is about Deerfield, Colorado. Now Deerfield, Colorado is a ghost town. Okay. It's the reparation is in plain sight. Anybody within the sound of my voice can take advantage of the opportunity. All right. It is a historic black township, although it's a ghost town right now. And we're going to play a, a recent from a guy who went to visit Deerfield College. Alrighty then. Hippie 1255 here. I'm about to embark on a trip to Deerfield, Colorado. I've only heard about it a few times. But anyway, it's supposed to be the first black community here in Colorado. Um, that was settled here in Colorado. I can't, I don't, there's not a whole lot of history I was able to get on it, but it's supposed to be a ghost town, but I'm pretty sure there's there's homes in the area. I'm not sure what it's like today, but it's about an hour trip, and um, heading that way now, if I see anything thrilling, 
which there usually isn't out in the middle of the freaking plains here, um, I'll be back. And uh, I'm going out to take some pictures, some black and whites, and uh, we'll see how it comes out. I'm stopped here at I don't freaking know where, and I don't even know if you're going to be able to see this, but check this out. Isn't that cool? Anyway, I thought I'd show you that. This thing is wild. Alright, back on it to the ghost town of Deerfield. Well, I found it. I thought I'd miss it, but I found it. There's the road to nowhere. And, uh, there's not a whole lot here, kind of like I figured, but I will, uh, whoops, sorry. I'll, uh, take a picture. Or some pictures. Or some video. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to walk around and take some video. Show you guys what Deerfield, Colorado looks like today. Alright, I think we're on. Here we are. I don't want to walk in the grass because uh, of the weeds. Because it's rattlesnake season. Look at that, they're even trying to hold it up. They can't restore it. They really should, but you'd have to re redo it at this point. Here we go. See that? Oh, the first African American agricultural kind. There you go. bugs everywhere and it definitely smells like really. I don't like this. Okay, I gotta look where I'm going here. Nails. Nails on the ground. For your safety, please do not enter this building. It is private property of the something Black American West 
Museum, Denver, Colorado, and presents physical and health risks from something. Alright, there you go. I do not want to go in there. need another body here to watch out for snakes because I do not like rattlesnakes and I do not have my gun on me. Nope. I mean, they've tried to put it up. Alright, see what's over here. Good thing I wore my long pants. Look at all these freaking crickets. It's like a herd. of crickets. Alright, let's go over here. Ah, road sign. My daughter would have that already. See if it changes. See in here. Everything's so freaking falling apart. <laughs> okay. Um, it's best to go to YouTube because this guy, I mean, he's walking around and you can't get the visual here on a an internet podcast. So when you get a chance, Go to YouTube and just put in Deerfield, Colorado. That's D-E-A-R, Deerfield, Colorado. And then you'll catch this guy's video and maybe a couple others uh, because it's a lot of them don't say anything. You hear people walking around. You hear some sounds, so you don't you don't get the vision. But it's, it's a ghost town. Now, let me read some background on um, Deerfield here. Uh, let's see. Deerfield was founded by... African-American Oliver Toussaint Jackson, April 6, uh, 1862 to February 8, 18, excuse me, 1948. Uh, Oliver Toussaint Jackson, the founder of uh, Deerfield, Colorado, was an American businessman, uh, an entrepreneur who was inspired by Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery. I've got that book on my phone. Go to Amazon or your favorite Link to buy books, digital books, and get it on your phone or whatever app you you know want. Anyway, he was inspired by Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up in Slavery, and formed Deerfield, Colorado, a self-sufficient agricultural settlement for black Americans. Prior to this venture, Jackson was a successful owner of several restaurants and catering businesses in, in Denver. Uh, dear Phil, Jackson's first wife either died or the couple divorced in, er in the early 1900s. Subsequently, he remarried a schoolteacher named Minerva J. Matlock in 1905 and returned to Denver to work as a messenger for Colorado governors. There, Jackson read the book Booker T. Washington's Up from Slavery, 1901, became enamored by Washington's sociopolitical stance on black land ownership. All right. Jackson fully uh, embraced Washington's views and lobbied Governor Franklin J. Stafford to support the, his plan 
for agricultural settlement uh, for black Americans. These days, you don't need to do that. You can just buy the land these days. In 1909, Jackson purchased 320 acres of land in Well well County, uh, Colorado, and modeled the community after Union Colony, founded in 1870. A year later, Jackson's agricultural settlement for black Americans named Deerfield, Colorado, was officially established, attracting settlers from Denver, Colorado, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Kansas City, Kansas. He's in Kansas City, Missouri. Early, uh, early groups struggled. Uh, some were forced to live in tents or holes in, nearby, in the nearby hillsides, uh, and there were continued shortages of fuel, water, brittle uh, winter conditions. The first year nearly killed settlers. Over time, however, the community prospered with a variety of crops, corn, melon, squash, which surged in price uh, during the First World War. War, War. By 1921, Deerfield, Colorado, was valued at $750,000. Now, you're looking at $1921. That would be over $10 million today. Uh, Had a population of 700. And remember, people, everything starts with one. Deerfield, Colorado, started as an idea in the mind of one individual Oliver to St. Jackson. By 1921, it got up to 700 people, uh, citizens of uh, Deerfield, Colorado. Uh, Jackson sought to capitalize on the town's success by erecting a cannery and soup factory. 1930s, the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl decimated Deerfield, as well as other towns, forcing Jackson and settlers to sell their homes for lumber. By 1940, only 12 residents remained. Jackson stayed, stayed vainly seeking young black men to reestablish the community. It's ghost town now. Up for grabs. And that's why we named this podcast today Unified Group Reparations. They're ghost towns galore in the United States. For what you might pay for a house in Chicago, D.C., Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami, Orlando, you can probably purchase a tent. Now, like, so you're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to do some detective work. You know, you're going to have to buy some tax certificates, this, that, or the other. You know, there are people that are uh, – the good thing about purchasing a ghost tent, the, inf- the basic infrastructure is there. The roads are there. The streets are there. Now, you, you're going to have to put some muscle to probably uncover some of those streets or roads. You know, but it's all platted out, you know, and it's it's there. So, you know, you just got to – you and, once again – Unified group economics. It's there. Now, to get some ideas on this, and we're not going to cover it today, but eco-villages. Look up eco-villages. Also look up, because uh, eco-villages are a type of uh, intentional community. And that's what Deerfield was. Deerfield, Colorado, was an intentional community. You know, agriculture was the, their base for several years. All right. 
Um, but unfortunately, this town and what happened during the Great Depression was a lot of people started moving towards larger towns on the grid towns for comfort and convenience and to get a check. Because when Roosevelt, Franklin Delano got in office, um, people you know, wanted to get that check. Um, and it's all right to get a check, but some people made it generational. Particularly when the 60s came along with Martin Luther King. Matter of fact, let's, let's listen to what Martin has to say on getting our check. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. And that mindset from Martin Luther King and a whole bunch of black pastors back in the late 50s, early 60s, until today in 2018 is why communities like Deerfield, Colorado became ghost towns because people want their government check. I don't know what Martin Luther King knew, but from the sounds of it, see, this guy, Oliver Toussaint Jackson, he 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 went to Colorado, black, just like anybody else, and he bought 320 acres. That's the problem I have with the Civil Rights Movement. They don't talk about that part of history of black history. Or America, you can call it American history, too. You had scores of black people started, and some of those black townships are still around today. For the reparations crowd, once again, There's several ways to get reparations. Waiting on something to come from the federal government is just one way. I don't think you're going to live long enough if that ever happens in, in anybody's lifetime. But the insight in your face, reparations opportunities right now, 
on an individual as well as group unified unified group economics level right now. Towns is a way to do it. Deerfield's just one of them. The infrastructure, the basic infrastructure is already there. You can go online and type in eco-villages. You won't live long enough to talk to everybody who's founded the eco-village, let alone start new ones as I speak right now. But you have to think with an abundance mindset, and you have to think, you know what, I'm going to get my reparations myself. We're going to open up the phone lines now. Unified group, uh, unified group reparations is today's topic. Before I go to the phone lines, I'm going to play um, two more short clips that, that bring this home. Now, we just heard, we just heard, you know, I just read it. Now, there was a white dude that was looking at uh, Deerfield, Colorado, started by a black man. I told you his name. You go look it up online. The insp- his inspiration came from a book that you can get on Amazon. You can download it to your phone, whatever device right now, Up From Slavery by Booker G. Well, I have it on my phone. All right. I'm going to play these next two clips, and we're going to go to phone lines to, uh, to open up this conversation. Plus, we're going to extend some time. i say some shit to y'all that uh, I seen yesterday that made me f- smile, but it hurt me to my heart. There's a house next door to me that's been abandoned, and uh, the yard, the grass, high as hell and everything. There's a couple of abandoned cars out there beside the house. Well, yesterday I get off work about 7 o'clock. A Mexican guy pulled up. He said, these your cars? I said, no. He said, I just bought this house, man. I said, all right, that's what's up. He was like, you know whose cars these is? He said, no. He said, well, I bought the house, not the cars. Okay, I'm like, cool. I'm thinking he's just coming to look at the house. I go back in the house, do a little straighten up. I swear to God, I walk back at the house. Now, I'm getting off about 7.20. It's fucking nine Mexican trucks just pull up. They got fucking beer, lights, and shit, right? So I'm like, what y'all finna do? He said, we finna fix this house. I said, what kind of crew you got working after 7 o'clock? He said, these my friends. The fucking house is fixed this morning. They went in there and drywalled that fucking house. Wow. I just left out of there. It was a fucking abandoned house. That bitch looked new this Morning. It was an abandoned fucking house. And it looked new this morning. It's an old African proverb. Many hands make light work. I just don't think they're better than us. I just think we won't do nothing together. Wow. You're not hearing what the fuck I'm saying. It was an abandoned house yesterday at 7 fucking 15. 
that bitches knew this morning he bought a tax lien house I can't wait to see what they do I can't wait to see is one family gonna live in there is they gonna I'm, I'm gonna get to know the motherfuckers you best believe me when I make some money I'm gonna do it I'm gonna bring us together I'm not fucking with a lot of people. Now, they, in that pocket, I mean, that clip I just played gives you a big hint on how you can take advantage of, use the concept of unified group reparations to become an owner, your own town. Number one, find a ghost town. I just gave you one. Deerfield, Colorado. You can look it up online. You can look how it was started and all that. 328. Part of the work that you're going to have to do, dirty work you're going to have to do, is you're going to have to fight, you know, it. the taxes. The taxes are going to have to be paid. You might not be able to do this solo as a lone wolf. You might have to organize an investment club uh, and start buying tracts of land within that city again. It doesn't have to be Deerfield because there's no shortages of ghost towns in every 50, all 50 states. Right? And then once you own, you know, pay the tax and you own the land out free and clear, you know, if you look at it from, you know, just walking down the street or riding down the street, all you might see are woods or brush or something, you know, overgrown brush, you know, trash, whatever. After you clear that all, that stuff all out, you get the plat mat of the city. You'll discover that there's, there's streets there. So it's all platted out. You got all the legal descriptions ready to go. But like I say, you're going to need somebody to clear things out. I haven't been to Deerfield. I'm just saying use this general concept. For ghost towns, ghost town reparations. Okay, that is a huge opportunity that is in plain sight. Um, I like to so you can go to YouTube, put in Deerfield, Colorado, D E A R, Deerfield, Colorado. But there's a gazillion, there are ghost towns in every state. You know, if you're looking for something in Alaska or Maine or Missouri, let's put in ghost town Missouri and see what pops up and, and, and go from there. Right now, the last clip I play before I go to the phone lines is the follow-up to the last clip I just played. Played this guy, you know, he he just heard him say that, you know, he saw his neighbors renovate a whole new house. I mean, a, a house that he purchased through the tax. You can you can purchase a house through tax sales, or purchasing the tax deeds, the tax certificates, or you can do a whole town. Depends on how you think, okay? So he developed social capital, okay, which is very important in a lot of these reparation opportunities. Uh, Where is it? I'm going to play this. It's about two minutes, and then we're going to go straight to the phone lines. What's up, fam? I'm about to make me a quick Res the Ruler video. Remember uh, the video I made about the Mexican house next door? Uh... And how they got it together and one day I cleared this with them but check this out 
When you put the energy out of the universe, it agrees with you. Remember I told you you put those disagreeable forces, the disagreeable forces will respond. Now I'm going next door, and I needed to cook some macaroni for my Christmas gathering. Now I got one kitchen, and it ain't big enough. Watch this. This is my Mexican family next door. Like I said, I got this cleared. They leave the door open for me to come in here and cook. You understand me? They left the door open. They gone. I don't know when they coming back. I'm in their house cooking. And they up. Macaroni. Oh, by the way, they did this in one day. Me. Cooking my macadoses. And they oven. Name of my organization is La Familia. So when I say one God, one people, love don't judge, period, but I'm right fist up your dig, I mean it. In here, in the hella black, hella proud shirt, shout out to Ron Green, in the Mexican house, almost four million shares, views on Facebook, made it the world star hip hop. I'm in the house by myself. Beautiful family. Come on, man. And asked her, could I make a video? She said, sure. My house is pretty. I love to show it off. All right. So that's the follow-up to the video I call Nine Friends. That same concept um, of, you know, they're getting together and having a beer blast and renovating a whole house uh, in a matter of, what, 12 hours or so? That same concept, and now it might not, it might take over 12 hours to do it, but that same concept can be applied to buying a ghost town. Uh, and, and matter of fact, tomorrow we're going to do 99 homes reparations. But anyway, today is unified group reparations. Let's go to the phone lines now, 619-768-2945, and get feedback from you guys. Uh, area code six one uh, no 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 that's my number <laughs> six one nine area code two six seven your mic is in. Uh yes, LA Sister Bay, how are you? Good to hear your voice, Sister Bay. Fine as well. And thank Good you know what you're the one that turned me on to ninety nine homes. Right, right. And you the one that turned me on the flag wars <laughs> and so many other things. <laughs> But anyway, I was talking about when uh, the clip from Martin Luther King was playing, and what I was uh-huh. getting from it, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds as though he was saying other groups of people got to take advantage of what the government was offering. Is that what he was saying, basically? Yeah, but, you know, during that time also, because there, there were black groups, there were also black people, that got hold of some of that land as well. He didn't bring that up. Right, but, now, my right, but what, to, be fair, to be fair to the memory of Martin Luther King, that was a sound bite of a sound bite that I got off of YouTube. So I don't know the full context, but there were black groups of people that did get some of that government giveaway of land. 
particularly in Oklahoma and in um, Texas. Here, here's what I'm thinking. I could be wrong because I haven't did the history on it, but having maybe bits and pieces, I don't know if it's correct or not because you hear and see so many things. Um, I, I think he was speaking from the perspective that when blacks came out of slavery, they were supposed to have for reparations what they never got, which um, I did hear somebody speak on it, but it's been a while, so it's so much in my brain I can't recall it verbatim, that about mm. the 40 acres and the mule. And so basically I guess he was asking for, since you gave it to other groups, um, why aren't we getting our share? That that's a, I'm only making a comment. <laughs> as to why aren't we getting our share because my understanding that a lot of things that quote unquote black folks were supposed to get other groups of people ended up cashing in on the benefits that they should have had yeah it, you know we have to a lot of it has to be put in proper context because not all white immigrants that came into the country got broke off land or any other benefit. It, it seems like it's just if you knew about it and you told other people in your social circle, you know, certain groups of people got it, including black people. Because um, the 40 acres and the mule thing, um, well, that never got out. But that, particularly in South Carolina, but in Oklahoma and Texas, in uh, what they call it, Kansas, uh, blacks got that knew about certain things that, matter of fact, I'll give you a good example. Uh, the Greenwood neighborhood known as Black Wall Street, okay, that was developed by O.W. Gurley. O.W. Gurley was one of the black people that found out about this government giveaway of land in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Territory at the time, which later became the United States, a part of the United States. So he went out there and got his 40 acres of uh, he got his 40 acres and developed the Greenwood neighborhood. But he happened to find out about it. How he found out about it, I don't know. Uh, he, he networked a lot. So he was able to take advantage of it. There was another black out there, Jay, J.B. Stratford, which I'm trying to get his one of his great descendant nieces on, Laurel Stratford on this podcast. Uh, she can break it down for you. So, Certain blacks found about certain things and got to take advantage of them. Certain on um, certain lands that they got had oil on it, and they, these black folks got rich. So, but we can say the same, same thing with whites, Mexicans, or whatever. So it was a matter of the ones who networked and happened to be in the right social circles found out about information. If they acted on it, they got it, and those who didn't find out about it didn't get it. Just like today, you know, on the Internet, uh, although we have the Internet available, you know, it's not everybody knows about everything that's online. Right. Now, when you were talking about Deerfield, Colorado, um, like I said, I was moving about. I know you said whoever purchased it or whatever, correct me if I'm wrong, they were the last person to leave the area. Is that what you said? Well, oh, let me see. Uh, let me get the guy's name again. Um, okay, D- all right. 
Deerfield, Colorado was it was founded by this guy named Oliver Toussaint Jackson. People can look him up online. And he purchased 320 acres of land. Now, he got inspired by reading, um, and he was born 1862. He passed away February 8, 1948. So he was inspired by um, reading, um, what's his name, um, uh, Booker T. Washington's book, Up From Slavery. Then from that, he found out about opportunities out in Colorado. And he purchased 320 acres of uh, land out in Colorado and developed, you know, Deerfield, Colorado. It prospered up until the Great Depression. So he was one of the ones that didn't wait for the 40 acres and a mule, he decided, you know what, instead of 40 acres and a mule, I'll go out and get 320 acres. And he did. I guess he had a so mule. So you're saying out. from that time, in the Great Depression to the present time, that town has not functioned, at, or that area has not functioned at all? The town, uh, when the Great Depression came along, uh, let's see, by 1921, they had 700 people. By the 1930s, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, uh, they decimated Deerfield, forcing Jackson and settlers to sell their homes for lumber. By 1940, Deerfield only had 12 residents. Uh, Jackson stayed, well, he was the last man standing because he couldn't find anybody younger to come in and take over and try to rebuild it. So then, who does the land presently belong to? Is it his descendants? Nobody. I mean, did he have the, the state? The state. This probably all. If you go to whatever it was, Deerfield, Colorado is in Weld, W-E-L-D, Weld County, uh, Weld County, Colorado. Uh, the best thing to do is Jesus. Somebody's calling. Me. Um is to go out to Well, Colorado, and find out, um, get on the tax, you know, get on the tax rolls, and find out how much taxes are owed, and find out what you, you know. I'm pretty sure you'll have a county tax bill, and find out if you can buy if you if you can buy those uh, those properties. Well, I have a brother in Colorado, but I don't know how close he is to Deerfield, but. Um... Anyway, the the gentleman who was looking at the ghost town, obviously he's probably going to wake up a lot of people or make an investment since he was there filming. But I will take a look at the um, YouTube when I get a minute. The other thing I saw that you sent me an invitation for um, on July 1st, Lincoln, Lincoln, or however it's pronounced. Yeah, I probably did. Yeah, you did. But here's, you know, I don't do social media of any kind, or so I don't know what I'm doing. I did click on it, and something about creating the password, but I don't know if creating the password would that link me just to you, or does it no, no, call no, no, for no, no. more that's, information? LinkedIn, that's for you to. That's for you signing up for LinkedIn. You got to have a password and username and all that. But if you don't, so do that means you got to create like your own thing. Phone. 
Huh? Yeah, you got to create your own profile. Yeah, you got to create your own profile. So can you send it in another way where I don't have to be linked up? Because I don't. I, I, everybody's asking you to, to create this. How can you remember all these well, things when everybody wants the same thing? We already have each other's contacts, so that's all we need. LinkedIn is if you want to take advantage of the whole LinkedIn database. That's how that works. If you're not interested in it, then you don't need to sign up. Yeah, no, I I won't be signing up, but I was wondering, can I still have access some other kind of way? If you can just send it that way, send me an email, because I don't even check. I just have that to have it in case somebody said they have something that's really large and they want to send me but they just need okay. to text me and tell me. I, I emailed you, so check your email. I mean, one, I haven't been on probably in about six months. I don't even know if I know the darn um, pin number anymore. Sure. But, um, and that one I might check every four months, so, because I don't, like, use it like that, and people who I'm close to are going to simply text me on the phone. Yeah, Unless I, I decide to unplug again. Yeah, it sent the invitation out to everybody. Yeah, but not, one thing right. I say about these ghost towns of people are interested in them is a lot of things you're not going to get on the Internet. With uh-huh. Like when I went to Taft, Oklahoma, some of these other towns, I've, I met people who don't come on social media. They really don't get on the Internet at all. And uh-huh. through them, I, met other, I saw other opportunities, and I met other people connected to those opportunities that you're, you're just not going to find them online. So right, if right, you're interested I, in, in, in ghost town reparations, they, I recommend that they're going to have to get on a Greyhound bus, Amtrak, or fly out. Because, like I said, they're ghost towns in all 50 states. These opportunities in all 50 states. You're going to have to get out and visit these places and then assess what you can from that and then access public records on how to acquire those properties from there. Right, because I know that every every um, state government doesn't necessarily have their stuff online, depending on how big it is and how much they've been pushing that. And then some, you know, like, it's sold off. another good point. Not all governments have their, have their information online. Right, right. Even wherever courthouse, wherever it might be. Right. Fortunately, here, they're um, building even more that they have access online. Some things I have to literally go to uh, City Hall to access, but they're improving that, so it's all good. Right, right. Um, But everyone is different. That's true. That's That's all I wanted to say in reference to Martin Luther King and his comments and um, why he might have been speaking from that point and um, what other people were able to take advantage of, which a lot of us, you know, it's almost like, oh, if you don't know about that's on you. Um, but we put it out there, and it might have been real brief or real fast or a little tiny thing in the paper that people don't read. So, therefore, that's on you, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. Well, good to hear from your sister, Jay. Let's go to her next caller. At seven seven three, your mic is open. Um, let's see. Good morning, brother LA. To the guest, it's on the show today. You know, it's really hey, interesting. Uh, well, yeah, good morning, pleasant, and uh, well, you already know about 
group reparations. So uh, you, you, I know you're acting on this yourself. You know, uh, I want to find out uh, how do you tie welfare and reparations together for hundreds of years and don't move on being independent. How does a person do that? You know, I was I was listening at, at you talk about uh, people buying prop three, four hundred acres. You know, I was telling you yesterday before yesterday we have five hundred acres now in Arkansas. But how does people do not families? You know, it doesn't take a whole lot of folks, but I think. A, Everybody should have a vested interest in capitalism that they expect to get paid because how are they going to get a check at the end of the rainbow if they are, if they don't have a vested interest? We're talking about four acres and a mule. That little town that we are, we are looking to renovate soon we get our contract signed is like a ghost town. It's been there for three 300 years. I believe it was uh, established in, in the 1800s. Uh-huh. And next door to each other. What's that other one that you was, we were talking about the other day? That uh, it's got the man got forty acres right next to uh, Pembroke. Uh, uh, Hopkins, Hopkins Park, Illinois. Hopkins Park. They're joining communities. So that this was done in slavery. So. You know, luckily I was married into the memory of Hopkins Park at some point, generations later. But what is it that we, is it, is it that we haven't been taught, or we haven't been, or we haven't recognized the opportunities? You know, that 40 acres in the mute, that Hopkins Park was 40 acres in the mute that, that the man got and developed, and it still stands today. You so know, a lot of we been, uh, a lot of this uh a lot of this uh information and education um, well let's take it back to eighteen sixty five well matter of fact even before eighteen matter of fact the, the, the entire throughout the entire western hemisphere um, there have been African or African-American based, whatever you want to call it, Negro towns, black towns, throughout the entire Western Hemisphere from colonial days, I would say from almost day one, there's been some type of group economics with African-Americans or or Africans, depending on what term. You know, we have, we've had all type of names from Negro or whatever that have set up communities, towns. The, the entire Western Hemisphere. I, uh, I'm studying Brazil now, where they, they you know they set up like townships. Uh, however, and, and and looking at it, it seems like a lot of these towns were started on a familiar a family. Typically, a family and maybe some friends of a family got their pennies together and bought some land. And a lot of them did it for survival so they wouldn't get lynched 
hung. They did it in places where they can be protected. All right. Some of these communities lasted. Some of these communities didn't. But it seems like it. A, a lot of these places was started because of number one, the social circle. Because a lot of you know, they, we didn't have the newspaper, we didn't have the communication media that we have today, back two hundred years ago or so. So like Mother Baltimore, Priscilla Baltimore, she was of ex-slave, and then she saved up the money to, to buy other family members who were slaves to get them free, and then they got their little crew together. And they went from Missouri to Illinois, and they started um, Freedom Village, Illinois, which is now Brooklyn, Illinois. All right. Now, up until you told me, what, last week or something like that, I didn't know about any other black townships in Illinois. You turned me on to two. Less than a week ago, Three. or about a week ago. Okay, yeah. Three. So it, it, oh, it comes from, you know, infra, infra, you know, who you know, information, and then when you meet people, do they have the have they been educated on the mindset of, you know, can I do this? Because what's interesting about your question is this: in eighteen six, I would say the edu- the practical educational level of the average African American was <laughs> higher than what it is today in two thousand eighteen of a typical American, no matter what color, because, number one, we knew how to build a house and a homestead. Matter of fact, we knew, the, we knew how to develop plantations in streets and cities because we helped build them. That's what we did for slavery. We, we had the technical skill on how to do that. The Harvard Ph.D. in rocket science does not know how to do that today. They don't know how to house themselves. They don't know how to feed themselves. They can't even plant yeah, a tomato you know. plant. <laughs> so the we've yeah. been dumbed down, in my opinion, just my opinion, we've yeah. been dumbed social down. Gap. We have more. We have access to more information, but when it comes to skill set, we've been diminished. And we listen to what because ban- basically now people live for bankers. We want to borrow money to get a car. We want to borrow money to get a college education. We want to borrow money for 30 years to get out. You know, that, that social capital messed us up because we didn't go any further than that. We Social capital and, and reparation, they tied it together, and they thought that it's a lifetime of reparation, one family after another, hundreds and hundreds of years. It just doesn't. And you got to you got to teach, you got to teach their kids while you're young. Well, you know, while the children are young. Yeah. You know, matter. I came across an opportunity two years ago in um, Oklahoma. For those who know me, y'all, y'all know what city in Oklahoma I'm talking about. Because <laughs> I'm I'm getting in protective mode now. And <laughs> okay. They had three siblings, three siblings, and all three siblings, they now live in Atlanta. So I already knew, you know what I mean, with three siblings, and, you know, it's a nice little house that they got. You know, I was looking at turning that bad boy into a bed and breakfast. 
Anyway, long story short, I I figured, you know, there's always a greedy one out of the three. Long story short, while they were hemming and hawing, I went out and got another property in that same time in Oklahoma. was my first piece of property, and that led to another. And now what I'm, I'm here was here's what I'm getting at. These three siblings who now live in Atlanta, okay, they kill, or they're trying to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Um, because that same piece of property, which has recently caught fire, uh, and they can't even rent it out to anybody local, uh, they don't realize that they got a golden goose. And the reason why they don't have a golden goose is their I don't know what their parents because their, their father was a principal of the school in that particular town of Oklahoma. If you don't teach their if you don't teach your children when they're little, see by the time they're twelve, thirteen, fourteen, it's too late. It, for instance, if you go into a Korean wig shop, a Korean grocery store beauty supply place, liquor store, and they had those little kids in there, their little kids, you know, two, three years old, and they're in there. When they're sitting around a breakfast table talking business, we have to get back to that point because by the time those kids get 15, if you haven't got them in that conversation and teaching them this is going to be yours and this is yours now, by the time they're fourteen, fifteen, they get interested in other sex. That's where you lose them. That's and that's what's happened to a lot of African Americans. People had, had they were called their kids when they were young, little. Therefore, no generational wealth. Yeah. If you look at if if you look at Walmart, you got to do that. Why do you think? that Walmart doesn't make it. But there are so many people that have their product that they produce on the shelf. It's you call social economics. Right. Because if, if the stuff doesn't sell, then that they go out of business individually and they start up another type of business that they can sell the product that they produce. Because if you don't produce anything, you're not going to sell anything. And if you don't sell anything, you're waiting on somebody else to teach. That doesn't make right. sense. The closest, so, the closest that in 2018, 2019, that I can think of, and some have done it, we just haven't done it on a critical mass basis, is the black church... If we can, I'm I'm sure there's some black churches that they've gotten together in their congregation, and they own a McDonald's or two. Okay, and I think there was some black church. You guys missing? I forgot the name. Somewhere in Mississippi, Alabama, you know, they got together with people. They they got their checks and they they developed something. But on a critical mass base, we haven't done that. If 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 some of these churches, and they could be storefront churches, you know. If they practice, like you said, practice group economics, um, they they can work. Um, they can they hey, 
that's why today's title of today's podcast is Unified Group Reparations. Because the reparations, we talk, reparations within plain sight, which we talked about yesterday, there's two of these galore. Only problem is, this is L.A. speaking, a lot of these black churches, as a matter of fact, this church, for some reason, pastor doesn't have the vision outside of that sanctuary that they currently have. Some do. Let, let me bring a little light to Let me bring a little light to what you're talking about when you talk about the pastor. The pastor is getting paid not to not to uh, do group economics. A lot of people say, well, how does that happen? It's how the pastor gets paid not to do group economics. Well, here's... here's uh, you you sound kind of fuzzy. Can you speak? Are you on speakerphone or something? No. Oh, my... Just keep on talking. My air conditioning. Yeah. All right. Is that better? Yeah, you know, the pastors are getting paid to not not to uh, practice group economics. A lot of people say, well, why do you say that and how, how come you can back it up? Well, if you sign a contract that the money that you take in over the pulpit, you cannot dispense across the community and develop any type of uh, finance, any type of uh, any type of jobs, other than some housing or cleanup, you 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 will get your uh, license taken away. Well, that money goes to uh, uh, that money on Monday goes to a white bank. The white bank takes that money on Tuesday. And go back to the black community, and and practice group economics because they started building and producing products. They started building homes, producing products. That leaves everybody that lived in the community not being able to talk, standing on the street corner, not understanding what's taking place in the church. And on top of that. The preacher figures that if I get my license taken away to preach, then I have to go to work. So he doesn't want to go to work. He wants to brainwash his congregation. So the congregation now says, my preacher said, and he want to use a book that he can't back up, and that's the Bible. He can't back up none of what he's preaching about in the book. Nothing. So the preacher is getting paid to keep it dumbed down. Well, let's let's go back to Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King went to Memphis asking the people to give them a raise in service, garbage man now, give them a raise so they could feed their family. For that, they killed him. Because they didn't want to free up slavery. Abraham Lincoln was killed because they 
wanted to keep slavery in place. 70,000-plus people got killed to keep black folks enslaved. So when you do your history or you don't know your history, you will have these arguments on a daily basis all over the country. And as you've been preaching ever since I've known you, that it's a collective effort to where everybody has a vested interest one way or the other so that we can have group economics. How hard is that to understand? Maybe you can clear up how that could be easily broadcast because I just don't think we get it. Because we as a people collectively can pool our dollars together. I call it pooling. A lot of people call it investing. But call it what you may. We as a people can finance everything that we do without going to bank financing. Everything. The house that I was born in was built by my grandparents. And the house that I grew up in was built by my father, our family, and the community without bank finance. So what is it that we haven't learned in 500 years that, we can, that we've been in America as slaves? We, and I do stress we, we have to get off the knob of being socially dumbed down. It just hasn't worked, and it will never work. Social welfare will keep you a slave. The way the way that social welfare started is when Abraham freed the slaves. It started because black folks didn't have a mule to plow, didn't have a hold of chop cotton. They didn't have anything but dependency on the man supposedly freed them, them and their families. So if you are free and you have nothing from the slavery that you wasn't getting paid for, you're going to go back to old master and say, if I will work for nothing if you feed me and give me that shack to live in. The shack that you're living in, you built it because old master told you to. And you've been living in that shack for 500 years, and he has got in the back. So that's my comment for the day, because we're going to be we're going to be building. Oh, let me put this on the table. We took the opportunity to build a website because of, because of the website, the internet, all the other stuff. We, as a people, have two quilting factors. One in this, one in. Uh, one in Florida and one in New Jersey. And you can go online and purchase a product that we are producing so far. But as we grow, we will be putting more stuff online that you can actually process from the internet like you do any other like you do from any other person that's producing product and got it on the internet. That we call it a uh, Store without walls. That's what we have. So we've been practicing group economics in this organization for the last 25 years. Thank you so much.
I'll let you later. Okay. All right, Pleasant. Thanks for the comment and feedback. Um, <clears throat> hold on. Okay, wait a minute. Okay. Uh, we're about to go to, because we got a lot of calls here. Uh, just a short history lesson, because a lot of these, uh, the disparities, you know, man, what's the equality? Okay. There have been black folk. Throughout the history of a Western Hemisphere That Have prospered Some started out as slaves And then found their promised land Let me give you some examples And you can look this up on your own Paul Cuffey Paul Cuffey during colonial times Look him up online Paul Cuffey was a, a black shipbuilder Out of Massachusetts He was not a slave Paul Cuffey built ships, he built his ship, he got 39 people together, uh, they crossed the Atlantic, and they helped found the nation that we call today Sierra Leone, okay? I would call that, to my knowledge, that was the first successful back-to-Africa trip that happened during colonial times way before Marcus Garvey was even thought of being conceived. Okay. Paul Cuffey, Sierra Leone. Number two, successful back to Africa trip, at least that I know about. And you can look this up online. The Republic of Maryland. Look that up. The Republic of Maryland. The Republic of Maryland was a country that was founded by former slaves who bought their freedom in the United States. Most of them came from the state of Maryland. Thus, they named their new nation in Africa the Republic of Maryland, and it was recognized by white folks globally. However, they had problems with some of the native tribes that were already in that part of Africa because a lot of the native tribes that were there were in the slave trading business and they were messing up their business. So the Republic of Maryland, they were new. They didn't have, you know, the population. They didn't have the resources that they needed to properly fight. So they partnered up, or they called on Sierra Leone, who was more established, had more resources, to help them. In return for helping the Republic of Maryland, Sierra Leone annexed the Republic of Maryland into Sierra Leone, and the Republic of Maryland today in 2018 is known as Maryland County in Sierra Leone. So they still exist, but they exist county. That would be the second successful Back to Africa movement out of the United States. A lot of people don't know about that. Uh, now, the reason why I'm bringing up those two is information. 
the internet back then in those days, you know, because uh, we weren't allowed to read, so <laughs> you know, those who could read, you know, they might have. It was dangerous to have a little flyer or circular back then. Uh, the telephone hadn't been invented, you know. People didn't have cell phones or nothing like that. So a lot of people found information through social circles, and then information is one thing because information can be classed into relevant information and irrelevant information, and you, you know, you got to educate yourself on that stuff. And so today, although we have the internet and telephones and smartphones and all that, you know, you still have to be educated on this stuff. All right, so uh, it, and then we can go on down. I think the oldest township is in Mexico, and then they got them through Central America. Like I said, I'm, I'm studying black townships that have been formed and still surviving in, in uh, what do they call it, Brazil now. But anyway, let's go back to our phone lines. Today's podcast is titled Unified Group Economics. I mean, excuse me, Group Reparations. Because that's what Sierra Leone was. They didn't wait. Paul Covey knows that. They didn't wait on the government. The people who formed the Republic of Maryland, they didn't wait on the government. They went on and formed nations. The third nation, which wasn't a back to Africa trip, were when the slaves revolted against the French in Haiti. They 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 simply weren't going to be wait for the French to be humane and then be nice to them and then grant them freedom and then wait on a check or repar whatever the hell form of reparation they wanted. They took it over. That's the third one. And like I said there in North America, uh, in the United States alone, there were over 200 black townships formed, not waiting, once again, on acting on what I call group reparations. That's when you don't wait on the government. That's when you don't have to be validated by any outside force, person, group, or political party or agenda. Group reparations, self-reparations is what you you do proactively on your own or as a group. That's what group, unified group reparations is about. Uh, let's go to our next call here. Uh, let's see. Um, area code 818. Green is in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Pastor Don Jr., CEO of the Entertainment Worldwide Network, based in sunny Las Vegas. Good morning to you, my brother. Good morning to the rest of the people on the panel. Um, Y'all really been dropping a lot of knowledge, and I want to share some light. Uh, I've been a pastor for over 10 years, and I've lived in 40 out of 50 states. And um, me having a winning team of 300 members, what I had to do was get off from behind the pulpit. And I have a for-profit church in ministry. Uh, our radio network goes out to 66 countries, and we have 1.5 million listeners. I've been in business for over 20 years, and what I've come to figure out is we as a people, we're lacking resources, and when we do get the right resources, we don't sh- share and pull our resources together. A lot of times um, we, wa- we walk past 10 black-owned businesses to go to Walmart to help the corporate company make even more money off of us, and we don't help each 
each other out. And, and a lot of times we we give the brothers and sisters such a hard time when we're doing business, all this extra research on research or research, where when the um, when a white guy comes in, we don't even research just because he's white. We just take him at face value. And if we wouldn't scrutinize and beat each other up so much and work together, we would be able to bring forth change because uh, leading by example, we're going to purchase 22 abandoned buildings in the top 22 markets, highest crime, highest violence, and work with a prison reentry program to help the people that get out of jail to go right in the jobs. Because a lot of times when you do long jail sentences, it just throw your whole life off. And it's not you just doing the sentence, it's your whole family. So I say all that to say, man, this is a powerful platform. Uh, the call-in number is 619-768-2945. Everybody has a voice to get heard. You need to call in again get involved. Press the number one on your keypad. I yield the floor to you, my brother. I really appreciate your time. Could you uh, repeat that number again? Uh, the call-in number is 619-768-2945. My direct number, this is Pastor Don Jr., CEO, that's 818-358-5722. And our website is EWWNRadio.com. Good. I'll be calling in and, and checking out that website. And uh, I like that idea of um, you uh, basically purchasing um, those buildings and those markets that you mentioned. That's another good example of uh, what I call group reparations. You're not waiting on the government. And a lot of those buildings that you can purchase in these high-crime areas, you can purchase for, I mean, very little money. Correct, and then we work with the people that's in a 50-mile radius. Now we're we're putting a positive energy and bringing money into the neighborhood from other counties. It's a lot of private investors that got to watch their money. They don't have nothing to do with it, and it's just sitting getting equity. We can have them put it into what we're doing. Okay, well, we're going to be in touch with you because we'd like to have you back on this to promote the going because the new market. Uh, it's, a, it's a major market that uh, the least be tapping Okay, now let's go to our next caller at 803. Your mic is open. Hello, how are you doing today, sir? I'm better than terrific. <laughs> That's good. My name is Lakeisha. I'm also calling alum. Shouting out Pastor Don, Jr. CEO with the winning team, uh, calling from Columbia, South Carolina. Um, hear that you all are talking about group reparations today. I can definitely attest to what um, Doc, um, Pastor Don, CEO, stated. Um, just our black dollars are not circulating through our black businesses, um, even personally. If you go out trying to market your business as a black person, you get 20 times more um, feedback from the same color than you would a white person or any other person. And the issue that we're having is that, yes, when we do get these resources, we either don't want to share them or we try to suck all the knowledge in on our own. Um, We're going to continue to grow African-Americans have been in this country longer than any other migrant, um, uh, Hispanics, um, Indians, whomever. And to say that we're still at the bottom of the barrel, um, this is a problem. Um, We've 
overcome slavery, yes, uh, holistically. However, mentally, many of us are still definitely enslaved, um, especially poverty is not so much so a position. Poverty is a mindset. And in order for these reparations um, to be self-produced, we are going to have to work together. Um, black people, are, everyone's jealous of one another. Nobody wants to be able to come together to win. You find Hispanics coming over to our country. They house together until they're able to build more and do more and be able to possess more. African Americans, it's all about, you know, me, my, and what I have, um, and it, it's not a long-term mindset. So in order for reparations to um, be self-engaged, our poverty-stricken mindset is going to have to be tackled holistically. And the question that continues to resurface is, where does that cycle begin? Um, so I'm definitely uh, enjoying the panel today and the information that is being presented. Um, I just released uh, my very first single, and um, it basically is not so much so about this topic, but it kind of touches on it because we have to realize that um, we we cannot grow if we are biting away at each other, and, and that's, then that's what's continuing to happen. Welfare, all of these other things that most of the African Americans, especially on the East Coast, possess is just enough to get by, not knowing that everything that they do say have is monitored and controlled by the government. And I don't, I don't think there's a not enough talks like these um, that we're involved with to broaden our mindset in order to overcome the stigma. So that's my feedback on the uh, on the topic. Okay. Well, I appreciate your comment and feedback, and um, we want to hear from you more often. Before we go to our next caller, let's listen to what Dr. Umar Johnson says about reparations. Do you feel that we should be concerned with what's owed to us as far as reparations mm -hmm. and things that were stolen? Excellent question. I believe we should be concerned with things that are owed to us as it relates to reparations, things that were stolen, unpaid wages from slavery. However, the question becomes, what do you prioritize? Do you prioritize your external reparations or do you prioritize your internal reparations? See, for me, the internal always precedes the external and that the external should not come until the internal has taken place or the external will benefit the oppressor more than it benefits you. In other words, I think there's white people who are praying for black people to get reparations. I'm going to say it again. I think there's white people who are praying for black people to get reparations. Why? Because we have no internal infrastructure. We have no economic cyclical network. If we got a trillion dollars today for slavery, White folks will be a trillion dollar richer tomorrow because where are you spending it? With white businesses, white restaurants, white, white hotels, uh, white, the white airlines. You're buying homes from white realtors. So it, who, if you don't have an economic network to capture your money, it goes back to the people who gave it to you. So my message to the reparations movement, don't stop the fighting. But as hard as you fight for reparations, you should be fighting equally hard for internal reparations. Let's take the $1 trillion we have already 
and build the political economic infrastructure in the black community so when we are paid back, when we receive our financial retribution that was due to our ancestors, we'll be able to capture it. If you can't capture the $1 trillion that you are generating already, that you're spending disproportionately on malt liquor, disproportionately on Korean manufactured hair, disproportionately on European automobiles, disproportionately on vacationing, if you, if you can't even contain the $1 trillion spending power you got now, what the hell are you going to do with $100 trillion of that? You see, so my thing is I think we're putting a cart before the horse. You understand? Put the horse first. And the horse is internal reparations. Internal. And the reason I say internal comes first, external comes second, in addition to the reason I already gave, is it eats away at your motivation and resolve and your self-reliance to change your situation. If you say, I need reparations to fix black America, you're giving our progress, the, the control of our progress over to our oppressor. You're saying we can't fix our problems until the white man pays us. So until the white man pays us, we don't fix our problems. So you're giving him control over black progress. Don't give him that victory. Because if the white man says black folks don't think they could do nothing until we give them reparations. Oh, wow, really? Well, don't give them none. I guess they'll never do nothing. No, you don't say that. And what that does is it makes black folks complacent. Well, we need reparations. Until we get reparations, we can't fix anything. You see, we become apathetic. No, we can't do nothing. We need the money that reparations is going to give us. And my question is, how much more money are you going to get than the money that you're blowing anyway? You're worried about being paid, but you're not worried about saving what you already have. Deal with the internal contradictions first. If we don't, we will blow this reparations movement if we don't take care of home first before we start going out to war with the European. My question is for the reparations movement. Number one, who are the lawyers arguing this? How much are they to be paid as a result of the payout? Because most lawyers get anywhere from 25 to 45% commission on the lawsuit. Are they doing this out the good of their heart? I'm doing this purely because I love African people. I don't want no commission. Or is this a capitalistic opportunistic scheme where they get 45% of the reparations payout? Because I'm not hearing nobody talk about that. Is this pro bono? And do we have a contract with the attorneys of the reparations movement that say it is pro bono? In other words, you get paid but no more than the next African does. Or is this some type of hustle? Because you've got to watch the opportunists amongst us. We have them. Every people has opportunists. You understand? So I'm looking for that. Because some corporations who participated in slavery have already made payouts. Certain NAACP chapters around the country have been paid by banks that was linked to slavery. They settled. In other words, they got bought out. I want to know who's involved. Because the white man will come along and say, listen, we owe black folk a trillion bucks. But we're going to pay the lawyers for the reparations movement a couple million. So they knock down the overall asking price. So we got to pay. But we end up saving half of what we should have paid because we cut a side deal. Uh-uh. I need to know the terms. And to be honest with you, money, if it is to be on the list of demands, should be at the bottom of the list. Because, number one, America's money is worthless. You understand? And, number two, we don't have the economic infrastructure to capture it. Number three, the only thing you can do with money is give it away in exchange for something, mostly junk if you're dealing with black folks. You see? And number four, because the benefit of slavery will never expire. The benefit of slavery to America will never expire. As long as there's an America, there's a benefit to be accrued by the enslavement of our ancestors. So whatever we get for reparations should likely, should also be things that can never expire. You understand? Money runs out. So money cannot be an appropriate retribution for slavery. 
because the benefit that America receives from slavery can't run out. So whatever we get can't run out, whether that means free education, whether that means you never pay taxes again, whether that, mean, whether that means that uh, black people are given exclusive control over certain countries, exclusive controls over certain railways, or, or waterways, industries, resources, those things can never run out. That's what I want. I want commodities and assets. I want wealth. Don't give me no damn cash. And I think with a lot of these reparations people, they're thinking about dollar bills. They're not thinking about commodities, wealth, and assets. Interesting. Uh, as Umar said, some people already got their cut. Let's go to our next caller, area code 314. Your mic is open. You know, I, I made a comment on what he said the other day, talking about America's money is no good. And then one conversation, you say that blacks make up, black spending is the tenth largest in the world, GDP. Then he says that blacks have no economic infrastructure. Contradictory. There is a contradiction. Contradictory. It's just right. slick talk. Plain slick talk. But uh, get a chance, go to this website. Uh, show you a project that we have and consult some people here. It's called King's Way, K-I-N-G-S-W-A-Y Merchants.org and go to the boundaries on the pull down and you see an area in the city of St. Louis that I'm working with some people on to Kingsway uh, Merchants Merchant District Kingsway Merchants.org Oh, oh, I got it. I'm on it. I'm on it now. And see the brother with the, you got two brothers there, the one without the hat on, the good friend of mine, both of them are really. And go up the boundaries yeah, yeah, yeah. and pull the boundaries down to the top. Okay. You see the boundaries and legal oh, description? Okay, I got it. All right. So that's the area that we work with. Now, you see where it says Fountain Park there in the middle? Mm. On that map? Fountain oh, let Park. Me make it bigger. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Right to the top and to the left of there, before you get to King's Highway, is where Red Fox used to live in that area. Okay. Believe it or not. But uh, that area. Now, have they made his home a historic? Have they made his home a historic site? Well, somebody would have to do it. You know what I'm saying? It's not necessary. It's, it's, it's home. He lived there at that, uh, from what I understand, because we used to come down Kings Highway all the time when I was a kid and walking to the park for a skating rink. But uh, we, my understanding that he lived there on Fountain right just before you got to Kings Highway. You can see Kings Highway, the street. <clears throat> that's, uh, yeah. But no, that's a and, and that's blacks doing regentrification, if you want to call it, because blacks stay in that area now. The area is highly deteriorated. They got to go. They have to leave. Buildings are collapsing, and so on, and so on. So that's about two hundred. I understand that it's about totally two hundred and sixty-seven acres because it expands beyond the green lines, the outline. But the outline is what uh, is getting ready to be worked on now. And I'm recommending a certain style house, a certain style package that can be done. And uh, if anybody else want to get involved, either this or something like it, the means and ability for them to proceed is there. 
They exist. It's nobody stopping them from doing it. You know, you was talking earlier about Sierra Leone. And the funny thing, right. you know that American colonization society, the founders of it, it was founded by seven white males. Uh, Reverend true. Foley, James Monroe, Bushrod Washington, who was the uh, nephew of George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Francis Scott Key, Daniel Webster, who was the brother of Noel Webster of Webster Dictionary, Henry Clay, and one of them I can't think of their name. But, you know, uh, Richard Allen and James Forte was also in favor of a Back to Africa movement. But back in, uh, <clears throat> I think it was uh, January of 1817, he called a meeting at his Bethel Church there on 6th Street in Philadelphia. And about 3,000 black males showed up. And he put it to a voice vote. Those who were favored of going back and those who didn't want to go back. Well, when he said those in favor of going back, say I, not a mumbling word. But when he said those who don't want to go, a loud chorus voice hollered out. So blacks would not want to go back to Africa then, even at that close of a point in time in history of them coming as much as they do today. But some did. And, you know, when uh, Kofi, as you mentioned, when I uh, took a group back, some of the groups uh, of people had some, uh, many of their numbers wiped out because of they were not acclimated to, guess what, the native diseases. Yeah, in yeah, native diseases and uh, so in climate. Absolutely. And, um, in the late 1700s, even being that close to the point of when blacks were started being brought, Africans were being brought here to America, they have become so acclimated to the climate, the area in which they lived in the United States, that going back, their biological makeup was considered foreign to that area. And the diseases attacked them and wiped out a whole bunch of them. So those things well, have to be considered. You know what? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people that talk about um, I want to move back to Africa and all that, which is fine. I, it <clears throat> last year I took a trip over to Asia. I ended up in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and now I'm in Florida, mind you. Southeast Asia, my body had. To, I had to drink eight liters of water a day just to feel normal. Um, Mm -hmm. My body was not used to that much humidity. Um, Like in Florida, where I'm at right now, I don't don't need air conditioning. I just open up the window or a fan and I'm good. Don't need air. But then... I, I had to be, in, in addition to drinking the eight liters of water a day, which I don't normally drink, mm-hmm. I, I had to be, I found out, I had to be in air-conditioned places where I'm going to sit down and eat something. I couldn't sit down and eat in an open-air type situation because my body hadn't acclimated, and, you know, in a short period of time when I was here. So you're right. Things like that, people, if you want to, even vacation. On my way back, I met a guy at the airport. He had fainted 
because he hadn't acclimated to the the climate. And you remember Asa Hiller? In, in the Caribbean, he had mm-hmm. also fainted. So it's, I've got my whole thing now. What I tell people, if you plan on taking a, a long-distance trip, particularly in, where the climate's going to be different, make sure you're in shape, particularly cardio, and make sure you're well hydrated and learn about that climate before you go. I see African Americans going back to Egypt. Uh, you know, I, one of my favorite spots in Ethiopia. That climate, that area, just w- runs right through them. But you remember Asa Hillard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He died because he caught uh, a tropical disease in Ghana, and he went on to Egypt and he died there in Egypt. It sent his body back. Mm-hmm. He had. But uh, that's just, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Nothing uh, spectacular. That's just the way it is. Uh, People say they this and say they that, but in essence, their body don't think that. They say you're you're here, and that's who you are. But anyway, I just want to put that out there about that. You remember uh, Charles Tyler? Name sounds familiar. Uh, he had a he, he used to host uh, a Brazil show. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, tell a lot of guys to you know, travel down to Brazil. He mm-hmm. died in Brazil. Had to be just recently, wasn't it? Thanks. Yeah, I remember him. Year. He had the BTR yeah. sh- uh, uh, show. Yep. Yep. And he, he was only he, he was only forty-four. Yeah, they it he was, was a black man. What was the name yeah, of the show? Black Man's Option. Yeah, Black Man's Option. It, he was the fourth yeah. guy, fourth, fourth United States black citizen that died down there because they, they probably didn't acclimate the climate. Uh, the climate. They didn't factor that in. I'll be down. And I used to talk yeah, to yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got to stay well hydrated. You got to stay well hydrated. Uh, on that note, people, that's it for today. We're out of time. Thanks, everybody, for calling and listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to do 99 Homes Reparations. On that note, everyone have a good rest of the day.